You're listening to Vexed, a program on the Ephesus School Network. I'm Andrea Backus, your curator through biblical literature and its world and culture. Just as a museum curator selects, acquires, cares for, repairs objects, and discovers frauds and counterfeits, I'll be sifting through our world and culture for examples to help us better understand the biblical text. I visited Great Britain for the first time this past summer. It's a magnificent island, a tapestry of green rolling hills, rivers, small towns rich with history, and of course big cities like London. The people were nice, and I had a blast. I'm a big fan. It was a wonderful visit, and I hope to go back and spend a lot more time there in future. Near the end of my stay, I had one final day in London, and I wanted to see one more landmark, one more bit of English history. And so I walked to St. Paul's Cathedral. St. Paul's is one of the most famous and recognizable sites in London. The current St. Paul's was redesigned and rebuilt by the famed architect Sir Christopher Wren after it burned down in the Great Fire of London in 1666. The new cathedral's final stone was placed in 1708. It was the tallest building in London from 1710 to 1963. At 365 feet, its grand dome still dominates the skyline in old London City. As I roamed around St. Paul's, I heard an announcement that a prayer service would soon begin, and any visitors who wished were welcome to attend. I saw a circle of folding chairs, and so I took a seat. Soon, an elderly man, dressed in a red robe, stepped up to a podium in the center of the circle and began to speak. He spoke prayers, and then offered a few words of his own to the gathered. His opening comments were pretty routine, and I don't remember them. But what I do remember vividly are the words he spoke next. He said, in a quiet and somber voice, We often fail to follow the example of Christ. I have to say that in that moment, I surprised myself at how instant and furious my reaction was. I was fired up. And though I wanted to leap out of my seat and lunge at the poor man, I remained in my seat and kept quiet. But inside, I screamed the words, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, sir, to say such a thing? You presume to think that you or anyone else could somehow be like Christ or do as he did? Much less fail at being like him from time to time. Who told you that? 
Where did you get this arrogant, repugnant idea? Are you God's anointed one? How is it that you presume that you are being invited to follow his example? And what example is that now that you've brought it up? What is it about Jesus Christ and his example that you feel compelled to imitate? Please be specific. What exactly? This notion that we are called to, in the words of this nice gentleman at St. Paul's Cathedral, follow the example of Christ is a failure of biblical education. It is a modern and not-so-modern perspective. I'm calling to mind Thomas Kempis's 15th-century book, The Imitation of Christ. This perspective, shall we call it a conclusion drawn, presumably from the biblical text, that we are called to follow Christ's example, is, in fact, imposed, forced onto the New Testament stories and epistles. It is a deeply confused perspective. Generations of Christians have been promulgating this idea, and it's a delusion. It is not Christ's example that we are to follow. It is his teaching, his instruction, that we are called to both hear, as in listen to, and follow, as in do. We are not in the story. We are not Jesus Christ, and we are not God. In the story, Jesus is sent by God to do his business. He is God's representative. You are not God's representative, and neither am I. We are the receivers of biblical instruction, those hearing the story. We do not participate in God's plan or God's work in the way that we speak about today. And we are certainly not called to follow Jesus' example. There is no basis for this in the New Testament. In the story, James and John, disciples of Jesus, express an interest in Jesus' example and are shut down. They claim to want to do as Jesus does, and they make it known to him. Jesus' reply goes something like this. Really? You want to imitate me? Can you do as I do? Can you drink the cup that I drink? He makes fun of James and John. See Matthew 20, 20-22, and Mark 10, 35-38. As we continue hearing these texts, we learn that what James and John are really after is glory. They want a seat of honor in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus disabuses them of this. When we explore this matter of the example, we find that the word example in Greek Ipodigma does not feature in the Gospels. Ipodigma, example, occurs only once in the Gospels, in the book of John. John 13.15 reads, For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. This is the memorable scene in which Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And even this singular occurrence of the word example, when read in its context in the story, emphasizes 
Jesus teaching his disciples the meaning of what he's done. And he concludes his teaching with the words, Do you understand? The Jesus we find in the New Testament texts is the teacher par excellence. And so, in this episode, I would like to make the case, in the hope that you might read and listen to the New Testament books with new ears, ears that are attuned to hear the content as a teaching. Now, I understand where this idea of following Jesus' example comes from. For one thing, everything today is about following the example. This is how modern life works. It's all we talk about. We preach to parents, hey, watch what you do, because your children will follow your example. We lead and we follow by example. More than that, there is a deep human need at work behind all of this. We want so much to connect with the story, to connect with Jesus, to relate to Jesus that we, in our reading and hearing, strangely miss the fact that he is begging us to listen to him. So let us turn to the New Testament books. It's not feasible on a short-form podcast for me to point out and discuss every instance of Jesus as teacher in each gospel book or epistle in detail. So I have selected three points, drawn from the gospels, which best demonstrate Jesus as a teaching, followed by a few examples from the Pauline epistles. The first point is this. The title given most often to Jesus in the Gospels is teacher, didaskalos. Jesus is referred to as didaskalos, teacher, 44 times by my count. 10 times in Matthew, 12 times in Mark, 15 times in Luke, and 7 times in John. And in every Gospel book, what Jesus does most consistently and relentlessly is talk. He seldom utters a word that is not a teaching. We hear the characters in the story refer to Jesus as his teaching. They don't comment on his person, who he is or how he looks, but what he says. For example, in Mark one twenty-seven, we have the reaction of people listening to Jesus in the synagogue. We hear. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching? Not a new guy in town, who is he? But a new teaching. In the story, he is equivalent to his words. And we have something similar in Luke 4.36. Here, Jesus is teaching in Capernaum in Galilee, and then enters a man with the spirit of an unclean demon. This spirit recognizes Jesus, Jesus rebukes the spirit, the man is thrown down, and the spirit leaves him. It's a dramatic supernatural scene. Now, it says that the people present were amazed, which you would expect having just witnessed such a marvel. But what they say next is telling. They don't ask, who is this Jesus? They ask one another, what is this word? They are interested in his word of command, 
that his words have the power to rebuke the demon spirit. I have to credit Father Paul Tarazi for his exegesis of these texts. See his New Testament intro, Volume 4, Matthew and the Canon, pages 34 through 37, and his magnum opus, The Rise of Scripture, pages 374 through 376, for more on this. The second point is this. In the Gospels, Jesus' followers are referred to repeatedly as disciples, mathites. Mathites means learners, from the verb manthano, or matheo, to learn. Technically, they are learning, not following. Or, you might say, they follow in order to learn what Jesus is teaching. More than that, the word count is impressive. Jesus' followers are referred to as mathites 78 times in John, 72 times in Matthew, 46 times in Mark, and 37 times in Luke. We tend to think of and speak of Jesus' followers as apostles, the famous 12 apostles. But in the Gospels, the designation apostle, apostolos, is very rarely used. One time in Mark, one time in Matthew, six times in Luke, and one time in John. Apostle means one who is sent, someone sent by another to do something. An apostle is not the same as a disciple. When you hear the Gospels, you're hit repeatedly with this word disciples over and over. It's worth pointing out that this is another instance that demonstrates the importance of looking up the words in their Greek. Unless you're a Latin scholar, you won't know that disciple means learner, not follower. A learner is not the same as a follower. Mathitis, the Greek word used here, is the reference word, not disciple. The English translation is not the reference. It's the word in its original language that matters. Don't take the words in English as, pardon the pun, gospel. Always look them up. When you're working on the New Testament, find out what the word is in the Greek. The third point is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' words are the focus, and the transfiguration pericopes most clearly and succinctly express this. We find the transfiguration scene in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each written slightly differently. There is no transfiguration in the book of John. In this scene, we have an interesting juxtaposition. We see the vision of Jesus transfigured, shining brightly, talking with Moses and Elijah. It's a spectacle, something at which we, along with the disciples, can marvel. But then, we are brought back to earth by a voice from the cloud, from the heavenly domain, saying, Akuete aftu, listen to him. Is there a more powerful endorsement, corroboration, that Jesus is his teaching, and that it is his teaching that we are to follow, than the words of the Father of Jesus? 
Let's hear these texts. Matthew 17, 5 While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Mark 9, 7 And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And Luke 9, 34-35 As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to him. Of course, there is much more in the Gospels. Jesus as teacher, occurrences in the text in which he is said to be teaching or speaking the word are replete in the Gospels. Jesus' instruction is woven into the story so completely that it's overwhelming. I invite you to pick a Gospel book and listen to it yourself. Let us look briefly at the Pauline epistles as they are part of the New Testament canon. The word epistle means letter, as in a letter written to someone. We tend to overlook the epistles. We opt for the Gospels instead because the narratives are easier to follow. But the epistles are essential, foundational. The Gospel stories and the Book of Acts were crafted on the content of the Pauline epistles. You might call them the blueprint for the Gospels. Romans and Galatians are the major letters. In the Pauline epistles, Jesus Christ, who is the content of Paul's teaching, is, for Paul's addressees, a law, not a person, the way we speak about Jesus. And this law is to be obeyed. In Paul's letter to the Galatians 6.2, we hear, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9.21, we again hear this phrase. Paul writes that he is under the law of Christ. In his letters, Paul often speaks of freedom in Christ. But by that, he means that we are free to obey Christ's law. It's a bit of literary trickery. You are pinned down. Paul is not offering you your freedom. Freedom, as they say, is not free. We hear in 1 Corinthians 14.37 that the content of this letter, the things Paul has written to the Corinthians, are the command of the Lord. In his letters, Paul also speaks a great deal about faith in Christ. We find the highest incidence of the word pistis, faith, in Paul's letter to the Romans. By faith, he does not mean an inner feeling of allegiance. In the Bible, faith is neither conviction nor belief. Faith means to put one's trust in. And in Romans 10.17, Paul writes that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. In the same vein, the Ephesians, in 4, 
20 through 21, have learned Christ. They were taught him. So what can we say about all this? Ours is not to marvel at Jesus, at his going back and forth, walking on the sea, healing people, but to hear what he is saying. Just as the characters in the story are beckoned to listen to him, so are we. So let us come back to where we started, to the soft-spoken gentleman who offered the afternoon prayer service that summer day at St. Paul's. To him, I owe my thanks. His words gave me opportunity to go back to the biblical text, to hear it again, and then to offer that hearing to you. Once more, Christ is not an example to be followed, but a word to be heeded. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Until next time, this is Vexed. Vexed is a production of the Ephesus School Network.